welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Home Efficiency. Hello, clean tech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community? Do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Check out. Hi, welcome back to Clean Tech Talks. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. Um, today, our guest is Brendan Milstein, president of Carbon Lighthouse, an uh, organization focused on portfolio um, efficiency assessments and uh, cost reductions, as well as CO2 reductions across portfolios of buildings, something I've certainly published a lot about. Um, it's been around since 2009, and today we get to spend a bunch of time talking with Brendan about what his findings are and what Carbon Lighthouse gets to do. Brendan, um, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Michael, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, it's, it's, I, I have to say, when I was preparing for this, I did not expect to find Mythbusters. Um, <laughs> so let's just start out with that because it's fun. I mean, I, I actually saw that show um, and I, don't, I don't, don't watch a lot of TV. So tell us about the, the fun Mythbusters moment you had. The, the Mythbusters moment, first of all, that is a reality show in the truest sense in that Jamie and Adam are not um, acting, that they, they are exactly like that. And it was amazing to, to be around them. Um, that, that show was a gift. I was working as an intern at Lawrence Berkeley National Labs um, and my partner on the Mythbusters show, uh, I hadn't even seen Mythbusters, but he came into lab. We were working in a machine shop together and he said, hey, there's a show on the Discovery Channel uh, and I need, you know, I'm kind of a, a straight man and I need sort of a goofy guy to do this audition video with me. Um, so that, that, was, that was my role. Uh, and my, my boss overheard us at the time and got, got excited, um, John O'Slack at, at Lawrence Berkeley National Labs. Um, and so he, he helped us uh, with some of the ways to figure out how to make parabolic mirrors to set things on fire. And then it was off to the races. Yeah. And, and that specifically was an assessment of the uh, Greek mirror parabolic weapon theory. Uh, if memory serves. Yeah, that's that's right. So the what happened was so the the myth is that Archimedes had defended Greece, I think from the Roman Navy by concentrating sunlight using mirrors and lighting their ships on fire. Uh, and the mythbusters uh, had tried to recreate this and couldn't. And a lot of their fans complained and said, "Hey, you got this one wrong." 
And so they put out a, a request to all of their fans that said, okay, hotshot fans, if you think this is so doable, you do it. Uh, and working in a machine shop made this, uh, we had access to a lot of tools. And so we, we were able to get a mirror that could melt a penny. So we built a little boat and wrote confirmed and flaming letters on the side of it. Uh, and then we got to go on the show, which was uh, as much or more fun as, as you could possibly imagine. Yeah, that, that would have been a lot of fun. I would love to have, you know, hung out on that show. Uh, certainly, you know, the um, high temperature concentrating solar is now a reality. Um, you know, Heliogen, who, you know, are <laughs> a really random company. I'm not sure you've heard about them, but they actually use machine learning to autofocus the mirrors and can get up to 1100 degrees, 1500 degrees Celsius in a kind of a small disc. Um, it's it's a, you know, it, it's a an interesting solution that I assessed and wrote about. But it's not a problem solver. It's just a really high temperature disc in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> it could, however, um, if you really wanted to, you could mount their mirrors and burn ships as they entered harbors. I just think the neighbors would complain. <laughs> it depends how good they're focusing us. <laughs> Yeah, and, and from the goofy perspective, um, I guess that falls into the um, performance stuff that you did uh, as well. I mean, we'll, we'll just dive a little bit more into the personal and then we'll get into the professional, but breakdancing and capoeira, um, an interesting and, you know, very uh, aligned combination. How did you get into that? And do you still, um, are you still a b-boy? <laughs> I, I am, sadly, after founding a company and, having kids, I do not have a ton of time for extracurricular breakdancing anymore. Um, I got into Capoeira in high school. Uh, there was a troupe uh, in Berkeley, California, who came through our high school at lunch and uh, cordoned off a little area in the courtyard and was doing flips over bricks while kicking at each other and smiling the whole time. And I thought it looked amazing and wanted to do that. So that was my sport all of high school. And then when I got to Harvard for college, there wasn't any capoeira there. Um, so another uh, friend of mine uh, from high school, Elena Krieger, um, who works at uh, PSE, which is a clean energy uh, climate change related nonprofit. Um, she had done, we had done capoeira together all high school. And so she and I started the capoeira club at Harvard, um, which was, which was really fun, but there wasn't there weren't a lot of people at that school who had done capoeira. So ultimately we turned it over to a professional mestre, which is a teacher. Uh, and there was actually a very good breakdancing scene in Boston. And oddly enough, there were three really top-notch breakdancers uh, at Harvard. Um, so I switched over to, to breakdancing, uh, which was, I was never a very good breakdancer, but I was good at hustling gigs. Uh, and so I did, I did track down, uh, actually my co-founder at Carbon Lighthouse helped, uh, he helped me find the booker for, uh, Busta Rhymes was doing a show in Boston. Um, and so I called, I called the booker and, you know, said, Hey, I run the best breakdancing crew in Boston. You got to give us an audition for this Busta Rhymes show. And he said, okay. And then I called all the best breakdancers in Boston and said, Hey, I, I got us an audition for Busta Rhymes to open the show if you want to join my crew. Uh, and it then for a, a period of like three weeks, I actually ran the best breakdancing crew in Boston. 
and we showed up for our audition. I ran on stage and did a flip and immediately ran off stage and all the actual break dancers could go do their thing. <laughs> and we opened the show. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Well, the hustle is important. I mean, being CEO, I mean, uh, you kind of ended up in Carbon Lighthouse, but you, you had a bit of a diversion before that. So tell me about the origins of Carbon Lighthouse. What, what led you here? Carbon Lighthouse is an environmental firm. So our entire reason for being is to stop climate change. And the reason we have our product and our market is entirely a response to that goal of stopping climate change which is 40% of emissions in the US, I think the number is about 30% globally, uh, come from commercial and industrial buildings. And roughly 70% of those buildings, both in the US and globally, are third-party owned. Namely, there's a landlord that owns the building and they lease out space to tenants. And that segment of you know, 30 or 40% of total emissions is entirely untapped. Uh, back when we started the company in 2009, there were zero firms effectively working in that market. And that's, there's a lot of smaller startups doing it now, but there's still, you look at the big players like Johnson Controls or Honeywell, and their main markets for their energy reductions business are still municipalities, universities, schools, and hospitals. Uh, so we went straight to our market segment because it was the largest untapped, unaddressed source of emissions and figured out how to reduce emissions very cost-effectively and profitably for landlords, uh, which involved solving a whole host of problems, which were delightful. Uh, and now we can cut 10 to 30% whole building energy use and carbon emissions uh, really profitably for landlords and are expanding rapidly across that segment. It's an interesting space. I mean, I spent a bunch of time trying to figure out how to you know, uh, sell heat pumps into commercial buildings simply because um, transforming you know, the uh, heating and air conditioning to lower global warming potential sources, electricity, and lower global warming potential refrigerants is also another big wedge that's poorly addressed um, in many places. It's starting, it's improving with... Um, uh, a major Japanese firm opening up a heat pump plant in Texas, but it's still, you know, spots of the future like Vancouver, where I live, are mandating it and driving that stuff, but a lot of places aren't. Well, my observation, though, at the time was a really interesting challenge around that you seem to be tackling head on, which is that um, our, our observation was that landlord buildings were where they're leasing to clients. Um, the, they were just passing the costs on to the clients and there was no um, benefit to the landlord for the investment um, that was fiscal. Um, the NOI improvements that you reference would improve the saleability of the, of the building, but not necessarily the value to, um, uh, to the landlord themselves in the short term. So how are you squaring that circle? It's an interesting question that I, I, would, I would love to have, get your insights on because it's fundamental to transforming the business stock, the building stock? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, what, what you're describing is the landlord-tenant split incentive. And that is one of actually multiple very significant challenges. So it's not that we went into commercial real estate as a market segment because no one else had thought of it. Uh, we went into it because no one else had been able to figure out how to solve all of these challenges. And the one you were mentioning, the landlord-tenant split incentive, where the landlord has to pay for projects 
uh, but really all the benefits of energy savings go to the tenants, uh, is called the landlord-tenant split incentive. Uh, the way we solve this uh, is borrowed from the telecom industry, actually. So Bell Telephone, back in you know, the 1920s, when they were wiring up a lot of high-rises in New York City, uh, they had a very similar issue, which is they want to offer a service, telephony, that benefits tenants, but they need access to the building from the landlord to do it. And there's all of these little telephone rooms, uh, you know, their little maintenance room where all the wiring and switch gear works for the telecom. Uh, and they rent access to those rooms. They rent access to their wires to maintain it from the landlord. And Carbon Lighthouse developed a technical solution that would allow for the same contract structure. So one of the problems with heat pumps, uh, and I, I, I agree, I think they're amazing from an energy efficiency perspective. One of the challenges in retrofitting them is that they're clearly a capital project. If you're replacing an air handler or a VAV box with a heat pump, that's a new piece of equipment going in. It's expensive and lease structures are very clear about what can and cannot be passed on to tenants. What Carbon Lighthouse developed was a software system called Clues, uh, which allows us to make all the existing equipment operate much more efficiently. And because we're not replacing any major equipment, we're just adding sensors and upgrading controls, it means we can use the same structure as Bell Telephone. So what we do is we charge an ongoing service fee um, that results in energy savings. Those get passed through to the tenants, so tenants make money. And then we pay the landlord an access fee for access to the mechanical rooms where our sensors are installed. And that way the landlord makes money too. So the whole process, you know, to use real numbers uh, across a portfolio, we might save, call it a million dollars a year. And the way the splits end up working, maybe the tenants get $400,000 of that, the landlord gets $400,000 of that, and Carbon Lighthouse keeps 200K. Um, so it's a great way to take a million dollars away from a fossil fuel power plant and split it between our clients and their tenants and ourselves. Yeah, that's a, that, that actually works really well. And, you know, the breaking away from the capital intensive nature of the heat pumps and the engineering intensive stuff with uh, more virtualized and IoT sensor swarm is, you know, I can see why that would work in that, in that regard. Um, and that's actually beneficial because, you know, while I'm strongly focused on heat pumps, I, I published um, and I did an, a you know, national assessment for Canada around the impact of the carbon tax up here. I'm not sure you've heard of Canada's, you know, major um, upgrade to its carbon pricing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, it, and I, I was looking at the value proposition for the worst buildings of efficiency. Um, and these are 5,000 square foot older buildings with gas furnaces. Um, you know, it's just like the worst leakiest buildings. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> you've dealt, undoubtedly dealt with them, you've got sensors in them. Um, but these ones, just tackling that 10% of the stock um, would have, you know, substantial CO2 savings. And in most provinces, because of the way the stuff works out and the um, coefficient of performance of heat pumps, it would actually be cost beneficial with the carbon pricing. Uh, however, that landlord problem is still there. So how do you overcome it? And you guys have overcome it in a very different way. So you can walk into landlords and say, I'm going to give you $200,000 a year 
<laughs> that's a much better sales start starter than anything I could come up with for heat pumps. Um, <laughs> yeah, we we worked hard to figure that whole thing out, and it's it's it took a deep dive in understanding how lease structures work and figuring out our whole technical solution to fit fit within you know, these multi-tenant buildings where each lease is slightly different and how could we come up with one simple solution that worked for all of them? But it is subject to Jevons paradox. I mean, the, um, the problem with portfolio assessment, um, I mean, this is it's your idea, your basic premise of your idea isn't bad, isn't new. You're, you're offering efficiencies to buildings to reduce their energy costs and CO2 footprints. Um, you've managed to find a great business model that makes it work for the leased buildings, but the um, experience of a lot of people in this space has been that when tenants get lower bills, they just open the windows and they turn up the heat and then you kind of don't get the savings, but you're guaranteeing savings. So how do you overcome um, that? That's a great question. I think here we're talking about different types of buildings and Jevons paradox or what we, so I used to work in policy for New York state. Uh, so I ran a $90 million energy efficiency program, uh, both in Manhattan and the boroughs, as well as uh, throughout the state. And what we called Jevons paradox at the time, back in 2006, uh, was rebound. And so the same effect, right? If you mm -hmm. reduce cost of something, people will use more about it. And what we find is that that is very segment dependent. So it's not true everywhere. Uh, specifically for very low income residential, when people are struggling to pay their utility bills, uh, this is true. If you reduce the cost of the utilities, uh, someone will use more heat so they're not freezing in winter where previously if they couldn't afford to do that, then they couldn't heat enough in the winter. Um, and so there that's a real problem. Similarly, in manufacturing, uh, if you can, a lot, not all, but a lot of types of manufacturing, if you can reduce the cost of utilities, you can create more widgets. And so overall utility consumption uh, goes up or goes up a little bit. In commercial buildings and industrial buildings and uh, in retail buildings, we don't find this effect. So in other words, there's a set need. And once that need is met, it doesn't matter what the cost is. So commercial buildings, especially in the US, the windows aren't usually operable. And so you have to cool the space to, you know, we use Fahrenheit, so 70 degrees or whatever in the summer. And what that's was it. That, what was that F word? Sorry. <laughs> fine. Whatever it is, 25 <laughs> degrees Celsius. No, no that's know. fine. 50% of, of Clean Technica's audience uh, live in the United States and the rest of us tolerate your... Um, absurd historic, a hist you know, historical measurement system. You know what? I'll, I'll give it to you on feet versus meters, but the Celsius scale, it's too big a swing for a single degree. Fahrenheit's actually better. You can, you can have it on feet and meters and kilograms and pretty much everything else. At any rate, um, there's, there's a cooling need. And once the space is comfortable, there's nothing else done. And once the space is lit, there's nothing else done. And that, that means that we don't experience rebound in commercial spaces. It goes the other way too, though. Utilities are typically two bucks a square foot. Rent is anywhere from 20 to $100 a square foot 
And the salaries of the people in the buildings are anywhere from 500 to 5,000 a square feet. So it doesn't matter how much it costs to light the space. The space will be lit. And it doesn't matter how much it costs to cool or heat the space. It'll be cooled or heated. Um, so there's zero elasticity there uh, in our market segment of commercial. And we don't do a lot of manufacturing. So for the most part, industrial as well. Yeah. And I'm thinking back to, um, you know, one of my part of my background is I was a, a global technology and business strategist um, and transformation project executive with uh, one of the world's largest um, you know, technology firms. Uh, one of my clients was a, um, a global electronics manufacturer uh, with facilities in 22 countries, 28 facilities. And for them, the HVAC was, they were penny pinching that down and it they were, they were such a low margin business because they were in highly commoditized electronics manufacturing, white label electronics manufacturing for other, other clients like HP or uh, IBM. You know, so they, they would actually build stuff and other people's labels would go on it and they would get pennies. Um, so they were like, I, I would not want to work in one of their factories in Laos, for example. <laughs> Um, but a very different market. Your market is North America so far, right? Or have you gone international? We've done a few international projects in Caribbean islands, um, including Sir Richard Branson's Necker Island uh, way back in 2012, actually. Um, but yeah, for the most part, we're North America. Yeah, which does put a specific um, labor arbitrage and comfort arbitrage in place, which gives you the ability to do that. You know, I was thinking of that comfort metric for buildings and you know, you're right for the target, for the buildings you're going after, you're probably not going after call centers in Louisiana. <laughs> that, that is true. Although there are some big wins to be had in data centers, especially legacy data centers and cold storage. Uh, but yeah, for, for the most part, what you described in manufacturing in Laos is exactly the type of area we would expect to see rebound as opposed to a commercial office building or a mall. Yeah. It's, um, uh, now you're also post most of the, uh, this is actually an interesting question from your perspective. You probably have data on this. I would expect we're mostly past the led transformation. So led lighting is, you know, not a, a source of great thermal load, or a source of great electrical demand. But am I wrong in assuming that uh, we, we are fairly far into the LED uh, replacement curve? Oh, that's a great question. We are far into it, but I would not say we are through it by any means. Uh, I think we are finding LED opportunities in around 20% of the sites we go to. Yeah, because uh, part of the reason I know this, I, I um, you know, one of my clients a couple of years ago uh, asked me to spec out a carbon neutral 100,000 square foot greenhouse on the Canadian prairies um, for a completely legal high value crop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's a there's a whole other LED revolution to be had there, which is the LEDs that are used in office buildings and houses are designed to mimic sunlight, and the light you would want for a very specific and absolutely legal monocrop is a very particular spectrum. Yes. And so you can actually get even more efficiency 
uh, if you target your lighting spectrum to that, as opposed to using a more generic office LED. Yeah. What was interesting to me was that um, I, I spec'd out, I did a various scenario modeling and uh, December 21st, 7 a.m., it's pitch dark, um, minus 40 degrees Celsius, which happily for you is also minus 40 degrees mm -hmm. Fahrenheit, um, uh, in a howling wind. If all the lights were on, it was a three megawatt load, which transformed into so much heat, <laughs> you didn't have to heat the building. And it was a glass box in the prairies. Wow. That's <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. Uh, except, of course, that still has a lot of uh, moisture, so you still have to dehumidify. And then, of course, there's the summer, January, uh, June 21st load with the sun coming in. Mm -hmm. That was actually 80% uh, as much electricity as the three megawatts of lighting on December 7th for cooling. Yeah. So anyway, uh, interesting stuff, but yeah. Um, so you're actually probably, your sensors can probably detect without even doing a site inspection, the lighting mix based upon the metrics, um, how this stuff works out, but you, you do site inspections. And that brings me to the next question. I, I was wondering, and I think you've explained it, but the hypothesis I had was that you needed to go in, drop a bunch of sensors in to every single building in a portfolio before you could start offering those things. And I think you've solved it because it's an ongoing service. Um, you know, cause that was one of my original questions. So you leave all, if I understand it, and you know, you leave a whole set of devices all over the buildings and they just sit there and feed um, clue, clue was it, or clues? Clues, so clues. it's our best acronym. <laughs> you've got other ones? Oh, we have so many acronyms. Uh, are, are any of them funny? Scooby was a good one, <laughs> <laughs> which was CCO2 or carbon dioxide. So SCOO uh, become yield. So that was a very early precursor to our Clues software was Scooby. Yep. I, I think Clues is better, but Scooby has, has a certain ring to it. But, um, but yeah, the um, how many sensors do you put? I mean, let's just characterize buildings because, you know, um, if we take, you know, what, what is the average uh, square footage of a building in, in the portfolios you're dealing with? Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of good themes here. We work in buildings as small as about 20,000 square feet. And I think the largest individual tower we've worked in is 1.3 or 1.6 million square feet. So you're, so you're above average for the square footage for commercial buildings in North America. You know, because, you know, that's, it's, but it's still, um, that those are, the 1.6 is a very big building. Yeah. Yeah. There's very few buildings in the whole country of that size. Uh, our typical beat building, however, is somewhere between about 70 and 150,000 square feet. Um, yeah. So that's, that's our typical range. And I'm really excited I'm thinking to thinking that would be oh, like, that would be like, eight stories, 500 employees, kind of average. I think that was around 80,000 square feet when I did some math on that. Mm -hmm. So it's just to give people a sense, it's like we're talking six to 20 stories, um, hundreds to potentially a couple of thousand employees. Uh, you, li you live in Vancouver. So there's a lot of parts oh, where... Yes, flat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and relatively small packed together floor prints. Um, there's a lot of areas uh, in the U.S. where the floor plates are larger than 10,000 square feet of floor. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you could pretty easily have a 60,000 square foot building that's only three floors. Okay. Um, but yeah, think of, it's a mix. There are some downtown urban high rises and there's a lot of two floor suburban office buildings as well. Yeah, which makes sense. And, and for that average scale of building, uh, you know, call it 80 to 100,000 square feet. I think you said 70 to 150, somewhere in that range. Um, how many sensors do you have to put in and of what types? Yeah, so this is, so it depends on the building size. It depends on the building type. So far, we've only been talking about office, but we also work in hotels. We work in education buildings. We work in retail outlets like malls, industrials. The There was a very exciting change that was forced on us by the pandemic. So back in March of 2020, we were no longer allowed to send engineers to site in about half of the geographies we served across the US. Yep. And so our typical model was send engineer to site to deploy sensors and also hire and oversee local contractors. And we couldn't send anyone to site <laughs> in half of the building. So we were forced into this perfect A-B test. And what we found out was we could achieve the same quality of results um, Namely, we could provide financials on which we could take the risk. So that I think there's two things that are different about Carbon Lighthouse compared to everyone else in the market. Uh, the first is we can take financial risk on commercial buildings, you know, even if there's a two years left on the hold period. Um, so if savings are less than expected, we write a check to cover the difference. Yep. And the second is that it's extremely actionable. It's not a recommendation that says, hey, replace your whatever, whatever. Instead, it's detailed technical documentation that a facilities engineer can either uh, execute themselves or use in an RFP for their own contractors. Um, and that that is what we really beefed up last year. So instead of sending engineers to site, we are now mailing sensor kits. The facilities engineers are able to install them themselves. Uh, and then from the data, we're able to provide very detailed technical uh, documentation so that facilities teams can either act on it themselves or bid it out directly. And this has enabled us to achieve really exciting results in terms of 10 to 30% whole building energy reductions without going to site. Yeah, that's a significant labor cost saving for you if they're doing all that work with, you know, internally and as well. And they're faster at it. That's the best part. It's not actually just labor savings for us. It's overall less labor because they're already in the building. There's no travel time to site. They already know the building very well. They know, uh, they know the mechanicals. They, they, if you say, well, let's just, I assume you have voltage sensors on major feeds to um, you know, the HVAC system, as an example. Uh, you have probably, have, you know, as a hypothesis, but this gets back to what type of sensors are yeah. being put in place. Yeah. So we, we try not to ask our clients to install, install live electrical sensors. <laughs> oh, uh, come on. <laughs> so what we found, and th- this is, you know, we couldn't have made this transition in 2016. We didn't have enough data, uh, mm-hmm. but we have data now from, you know, hundred million square feet of real estate going back in some cases to 2011. And so it's this incredible data set. And what we found now is that we can mail facilities engineers a sensor kit that's pretty small. 
So if they have a building management system that's really sophisticated, we send them a box that'll pull data out of it. And if they don't, or if we need to supplement, uh, we can send them another box, but it's, you know, 10 to 50 or usually not more than that sensors. Um, We have so much data now that we don't need to install the 200, 300 sensors we used to install because we can pull enough from our existing data set. I would assume that, um, you know, let's talk about a specific case study because it's kind of a, a useful one. You had the case study that had the two, um, I think it was the two boiler system and the typical leading practices were week on, week off, if, if I'm remembering the case study. Talk about that case study and, you know, how you instrumented it, what your insight was and how you resolved that, if I even got the case study right. Yeah, so our... This case study is very similar to about 80% of the savings we deliver in buildings. Um, And so what is typically happening is there needs to be some amount of comfort delivered to a room, right? You want the room to be 70 degrees and we're not changing that. So that comfort is always prime. Uh, in other words, you know, if salaries are $2,000 a square foot and utilities are two bucks a square foot, you don't mess with the comfort. And this is even more important now with coronavirus in that indoor air quality is becoming very important. Uh, so we have, we released an entire new product uh, that is designed to maintain very high quality indoor air in real time. So it integrates in with the control system and make sure that there's uh, fresh air, low particulate matter, uh, good filtration, you know, every, like in real time as the control system is sending out signals. Um, And so all of this is based on our Clue software. And so what it will do with those two boilers is instead of saying, hey, you know, we know we need to heat this room to 70 degrees because it's winter. So what is the most efficient way to do that, given what is happening in all the other rooms and the loads on the various boilers? And some boilers are more efficient at certain points than others. Some pumps are more efficient at certain points than others. And so what we're doing is equipping control systems to be able to say every five minutes, okay, right now we're going to turn this pump a tiny bit up, which has a little penalty, but it'll let us back off the boiler. You know, net that'll save 23%. And then 10 minutes later, the system makes a new automatic adjustment. Right. Yeah, it's it's interesting because in that case, if memory serves, the standard industry leading practice was wrong for that building. Uh, How often are you finding that, that, you know, the rules of thumb that have emerged over decades um, and the guidance from manufacturers just doesn't make sense on the ground? Uh, Always. But, but I, don't, I don't intend that to mean anyone's doing anything wrong. Oh, no, no, no. It's a, not what I'm asserting. It's just. <laughs> yeah. It, like when you design a building, by definition, you're doing it from scratch. You don't have any data from real operations. You have to make assumptions. And so I think the assumptions industry is making on average are very good. But there's almost no buildings we go to where when we get real data from real operating conditions, there aren't some tweaks to be done every five, 10 minutes as the control system operates. And that's how we're getting 10 to 30% savings. Uh, it, it's, it's almost always because the best practices are correct on average, but there's something 
you know, in the real operating data, that means things should be operated slightly differently. Well, hmm. I, I, I'm not saying this is a correct hypothesis, but is the operating? Do you actually think that the oper the operating guidance is actually correct? Because the manufacturers who create the operating guidance, um, you know, have don't have an incentive to make it perfect for the buildings. Um, it's just good enough. And so there's, uh, would there always be room for, you know, engineering improvements? Um, and would, would your data set be able to be fed back to the manufacturers for better guidance for the average? <laughs> yeah. So there, there's, there's a bunch of good themes in here. Um, so f first it's the incentive for manufacturers and designers is more extreme than what you said, which is they get sued one way, but not the other. Okay. So if, if you can't cool the space enough in the summer, you sue your designer. Whereas if you can cool your space enough in the summer, but you're wasting a little bit of energy, no one gets sued. Right. And so designers always oversize the equipment. And that's as it should be. Again, if salaries are $5,000 a square foot and energy is two, you want to make sure the people in the buildings are very effectively. And if you spend $2.20, it doesn't matter. Um, so that's, that's operating as designed. And then what it means is we can always come in and get data and figure out, okay, we're oversized. So it makes sense, you know, in these conditions to operate this way and in these other conditions to operate that way. But you have to have the real life data from the building to be able to make those real time trade-offs in the control system. Yeah, it's interesting because I've dealt with rules of thumb. Um, you know, one of my, you know, having spent a bunch of time in heat, with heat pumps, one of my buddies is an HVAC engineer designer. <laughs> you know, Convenient. So he was a part of the, you know, we were trying to do a startup and he was uh, um, on the startup team because you don't do a startup without experts. Um, but yeah, it was, it was interesting for me to dig into the space. Um, and it's interesting to see that, um, you know, standard engineering practice, Build, build with tolerances, but operate efficiencies the way you're modeling it makes a lot of sense as well. I, I don't know why, I'm, I'm not sure it's a, a directly um, relevant thing, but I'm, I'm thinking about the um, challenge with road lane widths. Uh, do, mm -hmm. do, you know, do you know this story? Uh, other than Seinfeld where Kramer <laughs> adopts a highway, no. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> The short version is that in the um, uh, first part of the 20th century, American highway designers with no data said the way to make roads safe is with 13 foot wide lanes, uh, to use that weird system you love. Um, mm -hmm. No, I, I, was, I was with you on meters. It's only yeah. Fahrenheit. <laughs> uh, 13, uh, but 13 feet and no obstacles on the side of the road for anybody to hit. Um, but over time, in the 90s and 2000s, empirical data started actually being gathered around this. And they found that wide lanes and no obstacles meant people sped up a lot. So now they're doing complete streets in many cities like New York, where they're actually narrowing the lanes to 10 or 11 feet and putting obstacles next to the thing. And people are not accelerating rapidly. They are maintaining a, a more calm average pace. And, and with the way they're working it out, it, it's actually the throughput is the same or, or higher. It's just the peak velocity, which is what kills due to the um, you know, 
uh, inertia being a square of velocity um, is actually reduced. So there's some really interesting things about how stuff that's just embedded in industries isn't actually correct. So, was, but you know, there's so much spent on HVAC that I'm sure that more empirical data has been fed back. I, I guess, yeah. Now, well, so interestingly, I can imagine, I can imagine you um, offering this as an OEM kit to manufacturers and engineers to build in at the beginning um, so that the building adjusts to be more efficient from the very beginning. Uh, have you explored that business model? Yeah, uh, th yes. So we have a, a couple of partnerships in nascent stages with some of the super global manufacturers to, to look at exactly this. Uh, I think there's there are some challenges in rolling this out right now, so I wouldn't expect this to be a 2021 thing, but mm -hmm. I do think that is where we're headed. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.